So I have a very bad habit of not answering my phone. Unless it comes up um, as one of the children's schools or my mother, I tend not to answer the phone. Shankari Chandran had been screening calls from an unknown number for days when she finally picked up. And I proceeded to then say, sorry, could you repeat that? Sorry, what? Are you sure? And so it was one of those conversations where he's like, "Mm, she's really not very eloquent, is she? (laughs) Maybe we made a mistake. It wasn't a telemarketer and it wasn't a mistake. Shankari's work was being awarded the highest honour in Australian literature, the Miles Franklin Award. I am so excited. I can't quite believe it, to be honest. I did consider that I might have been in the world's longest and best dream and that my mind could be so powerful that my publisher, my agent and my husband were also brought into this dream to share it with me. It turns out it's real. It's a win that comes after long years of writing, stealing scraps of spare time in early mornings, late nights, around her work as a lawyer, and in between raising four children. And this win, $60,000 and a guaranteed readership, comes right after Shankari had decided to give up on her writing dreams. I had not been able to secure a publisher for my third manuscript, which was a political thriller set in Sri Lanka at the end of the war, and I loved it but obviously they didn't. And so I thought, well, this is it for me with publishing. From Schwartz Media, I'm Michael Williams, and this is Read This, a show about the books we love and the stories behind them. Today on the show, I chat with Shankari Chandran, the 2023 winner of the Miles Franklin Award. Her novel is called Chai Time at Cinnamon Gardens, and it's set in a nursing home in Western Sydney. It follows the stories of the largely Tamil population that live there, and moves between the present-day culture wars and racism in Australia, and memories of Sri Lanka and the traumas of their past. I loved it. And I've already bought multiple copies as gifts for friends and family. Like many writers, Shankari has known what she wanted to do from a very early age. My earliest memories are hiding in my room on the floor, wedged between my bed and a desk with a journal and taking myself very seriously, a little bit too seriously, and journaling the angst of my life. And I had a teacher in fifth grade whose name I um, have placed as an Easter egg in Chai Time at Simon Gardens as my way of saying thank you to her. Um, She used to send us off on our school holidays with a, a massive wad of computer paper. I don't know if you remember the old computer paper that had the the perforations on the side. So she would bind that together with wool and it was called the holiday diary. And she would say, you know, write a diary of your holiday. And she would give me two bricks, not one. And she would say, just keep writing. And she did. Shankari's first novel was the historical fiction Song of the Sun God in 2017. Her second, The Barrier, was a thriller set in an imagined 2040, ravaged by a devastating virus. Despite its prescience, or perhaps because of it, sales remained modest. And her third manuscript was rejected, then struggled to find another home. Shankari was at a low ebb. 
The Barrier, my second published novel, I think, you know, sales of that had largely been driven by my dad. <laughs> so I, I felt it was time to perhaps let go of the publishing dream, but to keep writing because I love writing. And as all writers know, once you start writing, you actually can't stop. But there was a certain amount of grief about trying to let go of that dream. But also freedom in that, in letting go of that dream, because it meant that when I sat down to write um, Try Time at Cinnamon Gardens and acknowledged to myself that I really did want to write about race in Australia, which I had avoided um, for a while, that if no one was going to publish it and therefore read it, aside from my extended family, then I could write freely and honestly. Um, and that's what I did. The freedom from writing for an imagined audience marked something of a turning point for Shankari, offering a space to tackle personal ideas and emotions in a whole new way. I think I write the stories that feel urgent within me and I'm often processing some kind of rage and then I, at some point that feeling will evolve into love and then the best writing for me takes place. And I, I hope I took you on that journey with Chai Time at Cinnamon Gardens. Hopefully you could sense the anger, but also see that it finished in a place of love. You mentioned that you deliberately avoided writing about Australia and in particular racism in Australia in your earlier books. And you were liberated to do that here. Is that the inciting rage? I mean, is that the rage that ultimately you were like, OK, it's time to tackle this head on? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think throughout my life, I have really grappled with the the complexity of racial identity in this country. And I think that was exacerbated by the fact that there are only, only a limited number of people that you could talk to about that. You could really effectively only talk to your own, and I say this in inverted commas, your own people, because that was the only space that felt safe. And that in itself is flawed, right? Why would I only regard my own family and community, ethnic community or ancestral community, as my people? Because you're my people too, right? And yet I've never felt comfortable to have those conversations with people outside my own ancestral community. Or what would happen is I would, for three years, I was doing law reform in, in uh, work in Outback Australia and with Aboriginal organisations. And we would have these conversations and it was so fascinating and insightful and they were much more courageous about having the conversation than I was, but I learned to be more courageous. And that got me thinking about the intersection between Australia's history and Sri Lanka's history and the things that we have in common in the way that history is appropriated. And so when I came to sit down to write Chai Time at Cinnamon Gardens, I initially toyed with the idea of writing a quirky, whimsical novel set in a nursing home with lots of eccentric characters, um, because that's, you know, we're all eccentric. And when I went to visit my grandmother, the nursing home is based on the nursing home my grandmother lived the last years of her life at. And I thought, well, this is such a fun and beautiful place of community where stories and culture and history is transferred from one generation to another. I would love to write the story of this place. And then actually realised I really do want to, I'm ready to explore race. I'm feeling more confident as a writer, feeling more confident in my skill as a writer because I've written, you know, about 500,000 words now, I guess, and have rewritten about 500,000 words as well and deleted about 500,000 words. So I must be getting better, um, I hope. And thought, well, maybe I'll give it a go now and see what happens. One of the things I think you do so skillfully in the book is that juxtaposition between um, rage and love, you know, the ways in which the memories of stories, many of them are deeply traumatic stories, 
but not in a way that makes it feel like a kind of weight on the present day and on the kind of dynamics between the characters in your book. Having identified a setting, having identified a set of kind of big themes that interested you, where does character sit for you in building a story? So important. For, for me with this particular novel, Maya and Ruben, so the two, what I consider to be the two main characters of the novel, have actually been with me for a number of years before I sat down to write Try Time. It's almost like they've been talking to each other and just waiting for me to be ready to write a story for them. And then the other characters I built around them in order to enable and facilitate the story that Maya and Ruben wanted to tell. Um, and I think the most interesting character for me in my own creation of him was Gareth, because he began as a villain um, that one would love to hate. And as I rewrote him over time, he became, I hope, someone that you can actually empathise with and see the complexity of where he is and why he's there. So I didn't want the reader to look at Gareth and go, you know, he's a really bad dude. And only racists, you know, only bad dudes are racists. And I'm not a bad dude, so I'm not a racist, obviously. I wanted you to look at him and think, I know Gareth. Gareth comes for dinner. Gareth makes jokes on the side of the football field and I laugh at them. I think I should correct him or comment on it, but I don't. I let it go. And sometimes I'm Gareth. And so that's what I wanted to do with him. And in doing so, actually respect our own, all of our moral failures, because we're all capable of that. For me, the ultimate question of this book is whether you're willing to have a, a loving and respectful conversation about it. Are you willing to sit in the discomfort with other people and listen to what they're saying to you? and reflect on that and try to do better. And I guess when you're dealing with themes of grief and loss and exile and and war and everything else, you don't need villains. You know, the, the weight of history is villainous enough in its way. So true. So true. The villains are all there for us, aren't they? That rightly genesis coupled with the desire to start with rage and move to love do you hope that your sense of rage is contagious or do you hope to offer a cure for that rage in what you write? That's a good question. I try hard not to tell my readers what to think. And I think I often fail at that in my first 10 drafts. I can be um, a little parental at times. And so I do try hard to edit that out of my work when I revisit it. What I want ultimately is for readers to go on the journey with me and to make up their own mind about things. But I do hope that they don't stay in the rage because the rage is exhausting and it's ultimately unproductive. We don't listen to each other when we're angry at each other. So I have to move myself and the people who are listening to me away from the rage and the fear and the anger and towards that place of love so that we actually listen to each other and so that I can calm down myself and not have that terrible debilitating adrenaline and I can actually say what I mean in the way that I mean. I'm interested, I know that in one of your earlier novels 
you felt the need to modify the story and to modify some of the characters in order to have them fit into an Australian tradition. You you were kind of self-conscious about certain elements of a character's identity as being kind of off-putting to readers and publishers. Is that right? Mm -hmm. I wrote The Barrier, and at the time when I was getting close to finishing The Barrier, I was getting rejected for Song of the Sun God, my first novel, and it was being rejected by agents and publishers on the grounds that it wasn't Australian enough. Publishers felt that they wouldn't be able to sell the story in Australia and that Australians wouldn't want to read it. And that was heartbreaking for me, and it felt like a real repudiation of my place in Australia. So at the time, I was about to finish The Barrier, where the protagonist was this hot South Asian secret agent who could, you know, kill people with his bare hands whilst dissecting complex molecules. And so he, who looks, at the time, he looked a lot like my husband. And I thought, this is never going to be published. And so I did a control all, find all, replace all, um, and changed his name from Zakir Ali, which is the name I then used later in Time at Cinnamon Gardens to Noah Williams and made him white and made him from the United States. And the book was able to find a publisher very quickly. I am glad that this book is kind of justice for Zakir Ali and uh, he gets to be back there on the page. It is, I mean, it does seem to me as a trajectory. The Miles Franklin is a quintessentially Australian award. The terms of the award come from Franklin's will and say that the book has to reflect Australian life in any of its phases. So that question of Australianness, of this being an Australian story, does this feel like a particular kind of acceptance, a particular kind of literary anointing? I can't even begin to answer that question without crying into your microphone, Michael. Um, I'll try and swallow hard. Um, it, it does. It feels extraordinary to, to win it because of exactly what you say, that it is the Miles Franklin Literary Award that reflects, is, is given to books that reflect an aspect of Australian life. And writers like myself, we're always trying to say we're Australian too. And stories written by Australian are Australian stories for Australians and for the rest of the world. And we want you to see us. We want you to hear those stories. And we want them to be regarded as valid and as valuable as any other story told by any other Australian. And with this novel, the challenge for me, and it was a wonderful challenge, was to remind myself to put myself in the centre of my own storytelling. To say that this story is all kinds of Sri Lankan Tamil and all kinds of Australian Sri Lankan Tamil. And my lived experience and the experience of our ancestral community whilst it may often be placed on the margins of Australian society with other communities like us, it is in fact our normal. We are our own universal norm. We are our own mainstream. And I would love you to see it and embrace it in the way that I see and embrace you. Shankaria's had to sit on the secret of her win for a couple of weeks, but now that it's public, her dad can go from being the chief buyer of her books to her chief publicist instead. He will WhatsApp the world's largest WhatsApp group, <laughs> and you tell one Sri Lankan Tamil, before you know it, every single Sri Lankan Tamil is going to know. I love that. Well, enjoy every last bit of it. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. This has been such a lovely chat, lovely conversation. And I'll probably have to put the microphone down now and cry for five minutes because, you know, it's all very overwhelming. 
this year's Miles Franklin Award winner Shankari Chandran, whose wonderful chai time at Cinnamon Gardens won out of a very strong shortlist. Coming up after the break, I'm going to dig into that shortlist a little deeper with one of the biggest readers I know, investigative reporter Kate McClymont. Kate shares her favourite from the other books in contention for the award, and I share mine. Stick around. Did you know you can support the artists you love and receive a tax deduction for donations over $2 through the Australian Cultural Fund? Last year, the Australian Cultural Fund facilitated over $11 million of donations to artists across the country. You can make a real difference to the work of Australian artists this end of financial year by donating through the Australian Cultural Fund. For more information, visit australianculturalfund.org.au. With award-winning news coverage and reviews, the Saturday paper is essential reading for everybody. For a limited time, subscribe to a year of our quality, independent journalism and you'll receive the Saturday paper's stainless steel coffee cup made in collaboration with Fresco for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. The Saturday Paper. No hot takes. Welcome back. Literary prizes, like any popularity contest, are a bit of a crapshoot, and half the fun lies in debating the pros and cons of the winner. As any awards watcher will tell you, don't snooze on the shortlist. One of my favourite people to talk about books with is my friend Kate McClymont, Most people know her as the journalist responsible for exposing corruption in New South Wales, bringing down governments and shonky businessmen alike. But Kate's also a huge reader and a regular judge for literary awards like the Stella Prize and the New South Wales Premier's Award, and she loved Chai Time at Cinnamon Gardens. I really enjoyed reading this book. This really does give you that view of what does it mean to be an Australian. And with so many people coming from overseas, just the validity of their stories and their background, I found it really refreshing seeing a a story like this told from a different perspective. It wasn't the book I was expecting from either the title or the cover design. You know, for all the world looks like a sweet, possibly even slightly twee book about an old age home in Sydney and the residence. And it's almost packaged like an Alexander McCall Smith book. And instead, once I started reading, it was kind of its interests were far more about war, about trauma, about these questions about belonging than I'd expected going in. You know, it, it was one of those books that after I read it, I wanted other Australians to read it. I agree. I just thought it was really, really exquisite. So we're both in agreement that it's a deserving winner, but uh, how do you feel about the rest of the shortlist? I couldn't think of a shortlist that I could recommend more. And they are rich, they're diverse, and I think there's a lot of enjoyment to be had out of all of them. So what was your favourite? My favourite on the shortlist was Iris by Fiona Kelly McGregor. I think Fiona's a wonderful writer. She's been writing for years. I think it's something like her eighth book. With Iris, she's written her big historical novel. And to a certain extent, big historical novels that are important and a kind of gritty underbelly of Sydney and those kind of stories about identity and that kind of thing uh, award catnip. But I don't think this is a book written remotely cynically. It feels like a story that 
Fiona is personally deeply drawn to and kind of determined to tell, determined to share, if that makes sense. I just found it an absolutely gripping read. I loved it as well. This was a really a rollicking read of the, the sly grog era in Sydney's depression. And it was just about this girl from the country, Iris Webber, no connections, no money, and just what she had to do to survive and, and told with an absolutely unflinching yet caring eye from the author. And I wondered if I loved it too because I lived in Surrey Hills and the exploration of, you know, the 1930s grit and poverty set in the inner city suburbs and streets. I sort of wondered whether that had a special resonance. Are you from Sydney? I am not at So all. that didn't matter to you? And look, I liked it nonetheless. I mean, normally yep. I will throw a book that's set in Sydney across the room <laughs> in rage, but the, this time it didn't affect me. No. And look, I think one of the other things I loved about it was the use of language from the time. And, you know, she describes her arrival at Central Station. You know, her first observations were a boy selling shoelaces spread out on cardboard, two women in pencil skirts, an old man staggered past with his pants falling down, bronzer on full display. And, of course, bronzer is an anus. And I just, I loved, um, the, you know, you had to figure those kind of things out. I loved the flavour that that language gave to, you know, firmly establishing it in that period of 1930s sly grog shops and the such a struggle to live. I That was one of the things that really got me. Yeah, I think I think that's beautifully done. And in Iris Weber, she has an extraordinary kind of heroine. I thought it could have had a little tiny edit and I sometimes thought the history of Iris's story, I think, sometimes weighed down the plot. But I still, I still really loved it and just that beautiful re-rendering of Australian history. I thought it was really good. It's, but people should be warned if they're afraid of bronzer references. <laughs> Kate's favourite from the shortlist was Limberlost by Tasmanian writer Robbie Arnott, and it was the bookie's favourite too. It's the second time Robbie's been shortlisted for the Miles Franklin Award, and it's only his third book. He writes stories that are deeply concerned with the disappearance of the natural world. His second book, The Rain Heron, was an absolute cracker, and Limberlost is a worthy successor. I just found it um, an absolutely gorgeous and beautiful piece of writing. It's set in Tasmania, and it's about a young boy. And the novel by Robbie Arnott, it sort of drifts a little bit between the present and the past. You know, sometimes that can get a little clunky, but... You know, one of the central characters is a quoll, and a quoll being actually a rather nasty and unpleasant <laughs> little, you know, carnivorous marsupial, but at the same time completely beautiful in its soft pelt. And I just found, you know, the fact that he captures this quoll that's caught in a trap, there was so much horror in his description of animals and pain but at the same time so beautiful anyway look i i really enjoyed it 
And it is amazing how completely different the six books on the shortlist are, don't you think? I think that's the strength of any good award, is the, the range of things on offer, the kind of what it says about the kind of breadth of quality that's out there. Mm, exactly. Kate, thank you very much. Oh, thank you. It's been a joy. This year, the Saturday paper celebrates 10 years as Australia's leading independent newspaper. In that time, it's built a peerless reputation for quality journalism, for telling stories that are ignored elsewhere. Subscribe now at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash subscribe. Before we go, I wanted to give a quick shout-out to the other three books on this year's Miles Franklin shortlist. All books I've enjoyed, all books I would happily recommend. The debut on the shortlist was from Melbourne writer Kirshak Acek. It's called Hopeless Kingdom, and it's astonishingly talented for a first book. It's a gorgeous example of a migrant story, one that makes its way from Cairo to Geelong. Jessica Owl's Cold Enough for Snow is a crisp, delicate novella about a mother and daughter travelling across Japan. It's very tender and beautifully done. And the final book on the shortlist was Yumna Kasab's dreamlike story of romance called The Lovers. The opening sentence is particularly memorable. What Amir loved most about Jamila was that she smelled of money. It's a surprising and touching read. You can find all three of these books and all the others we mentioned at your favourite independent bookstore. Or if you want to listen to them as audiobooks, you can head to the Read This Reading Room on Apple Books at apple.co slash readthis. There's a link in our show notes. That's it for this week's show. If you enjoyed it, please tell your friends about it and rate and review us. It helps us a lot. Next week on Read This, I'm joined by Pulitzer Prize-winning author Colson Whitehead. His new book, Crook Manifesto, has just come out. It's a follow-up to Harlem Shuffle, which was one of the best books of 2021. We talk about bad heists, crazy fans, and his recurring character, New York City. I always thought it was a cliche when people were like, oh, the city is also a character in the novel. Like, uh, Dublin and Ulysses, it's also a character. Halfway through Harlem Shuffle, I was like, all right, I guess, I guess the city is a freaking character. This episode was produced by Clara Ames and edited by Sarah McVeigh. Mixing and original compositions by Zoltan Fetcher. Thanks for listening. See you next week.